Jen, we have reached a point of culmination. A welcome to the Ribbon Book Club. Oh, right. Also that. <laughs> right. Welcome to the, the, the Ribbon Book Club, a Dear America podcast. I'm Kate Reed. I'm Jen Voss, and this is a podcast where we definitely know how to introduce our own show. Uh, historically, we've always been quite and... good at introducing our own shows. <laughs> yes. So, uh, but we are going to get right into it because we have a great episode, I'm sure. I'm psyched. <laughs> okay, so like I'm genuinely double rainbow all the way psyched. Uh, we actually do have a guest who um, not only can speak to both books, yeah. Um, also can because he has read both books wow i know i felt that was very on top of it yeah right like a level of togetherness that i have never once in my life displayed reading books well no i mean but like doing assignment reading yeah we do that all the time for this show well yeah for this show but it's a it's like max 300 pages right so Anyway, we really appreciate it. We're very excited. Uh, yeah. And Kate's going to introduce our guest. Absolutely. Right. His name is Paul Ringel. Mm-hmm. He is a professor of history at High Point University. Mm-hmm. He is the author of the award-winning Commercializing Childhood, Children's Magazines, Urban Gentility, and the Ideal of the Child Consumer in the United States, 1823 through 1819, which was published in 2015. Um, as well as numerous scholarly articles about the intersection of childhood, race, and sports. His writing has appeared in publications including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Smithsonian, and Time. Dr. Ringel's current work includes The William Penn Project, a public history project on a segregated black high school in High Point, North Carolina, History BLK, a reboot of Schoolhouse Rock focused on black history, and the book Kid History Inc. Selling Children the American Past. I think that is what I'm most excited to talk to him about. Me too, because it's exactly what we're talking about. Exactly. I would also like to shout out my friend Grace, who uh, you might uh, remember from the diary that we read. Yes. So God bless her. <laughs> thank you, Grace. Uh, but she works for an incredible organization called um, Facing History and Ourselves, which is um, an organization that focuses on um, and I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me if I get it wrong, but I, I, I believe they, they work with um, designing curriculum that actually teaches history well to, you know, younger kids. And so uh, Dr. Ringel did um, a presentation to them. And now we are connected and now we are talking to Dr. Ringel and I am so excited. Um, so without further ado, we will take it away. So first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our show. We are so excited to have you. I'm um, really excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. So uh, I think we, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. Since we are talking about kind of kid-based history, I would love to know what got you interested in history. Was it at an early age or what did you come to it later in life? Tell me about it. No, I, I always liked it. And um, I grew up in the Boston suburbs. And, um, you know, there's history all over the place and all of our all oh, of our yeah. trips, we'd go to Salem or we'd go to Plymouth or we'd go to the Constitution in Boston Harbor and all those things. And I kind of liked all that. And um, I got really into my dad gave me I must have been about 10 
And my dad gave me these books by a guy named Joseph Altscheller. Do you know these books? I don't know these books. They're, they're over 100 years old, and now they're, <laughs> I, I look at them and they're really awful. Um, but yeah. these books about the Civil War and like mm. boys, I had my Civil War phase. And I didn't have a Robert E. Lee phase growing up in Massachusetts, oh. but I did have a Civil War phase. Mm -hmm. And um, he writes these books and i'm actually going back for the book that i'm working on now and starting to reread some of them and i'm kind of horrified mm. um, <laughs> um you know i was 10 and yeah. I read these books about the civil war and about western expansion and and all of these issues and and in a lot of ways i know now i didn't know then they're they're you know similar to the the dime novels of, of the Beatle dime novels of the 1870s and so, or so, and the the Edward Stratemeyer books. I don't know if you guys know about Edward Stratemeyer. No, that doesn't ring with me either. Oh, you should. If you're doing children's books, you should know Edward Stratemeyer. So he's okay. most famous um, because he created this publishing syndicate mm -hmm. um, that. Uh, published the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Oh, yes. Oh, I have oh, so many yeah, of yeah. the Nancy Drew books. But so, yeah, that Carolyn Keene obviously is a pseudonym and they were they were run by the time Nancy Drew came out. He was either retired or maybe even had died. But his daughter was running the company and and she sort of oversaw the Nancy Drew books. But he mm. did the Hardy Boys and um, the Bobsy Twins and all oh, these. Oh, gosh. But he started in um in the 1890s around the time of the spanish-american war and this is the story that i always tell about how i got my dissertation topic so i may be jumping ahead but we're mixing the no, two no i'm happy to hear this um so when i was at brandeis in grad school we had to write uh an independent research paper kind of like an article length independent research paper our first year and I had decided that I was going to write on this guy named John Hay, who I thought was really cool because he was one of President Lincoln's personal secretaries as a young mm. man during the Civil War. And then he was Teddy Roosevelt's secretary of state when, you know, 40 years later. And I thought there was something really cool about that and maybe something interesting to do. So I'm in, you know, at Brandeis, just outside of Boston. And the John Hay Library is at Brown. So I drive down to Providence and start looking around at the John Hay stuff. And I'm in the back with one of the librarians. And she hands me this book. And she says, look at this. And it was by Edward Stratemeyer. And he used his actual name. This is one of the first books he ever wrote. And it's about the Spanish-American War. Hmm. And um, it's about a boy who um, stowed away on the um with the fleet going to the philippines during the spanish-american war and so it looked like a hardy boys book and i was like this looks like a hardy boys book <laughs> i have a, i still have a whole collection of them too and then when i found out he had actually written or, or published the hardy boys books later i went back and found out there was this whole series of books um on the spanish-american war and the boxer rebellion and the russo jeff and so he taught this this whole generation of boys about what they were supposed to think about imperialism in the 1890s and early 1900s. And so that that's is what, so cool. Yeah, well, that's what I wrote my first year paper on. Um, and then it kind of morphed into originally that was going to be my book and it didn't end up being that. But um, mm -hmm. I wrote an article about it later on. Um, 
but so I've always been fascinated with, you know, I've always been a totally geeky reader and a totally, um, I loved history, but I loved novels too. I was almost a double major in college and, um, and, um, I don't know exactly what got me into children's books other than that chance encounter and the fact that my dad's a pediatrician and my mom was mm. a high school teacher. So there you go, um, yeah. that's what dealing with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, so I went with, I started with Edward Stratemeyer and 20 something years later, here we are youth culture, every way I can look at it. So I think that's so neat. And what, a, what an amazing connection. Uh, I'm really excited. I'm going to go find those books. I, yeah. I maintain a little free library. Yeah. Well, do you and want then, those books, though? I mean, <laughs> well, was it that? I want them for my own interest. Oh, okay. I, I The Nancy Drews that I have yeah. are for the little free library. Gotcha. So I want to compare and contrast. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. So you, yeah, you, the, the tie in between historical fiction and history, like it just seems like it's been really interwoven yeah. throughout your life. And that's that's really fascinating because I, you know, that's why I was obsessed with with the Dear America books as a kid. Um, but of course, you were pitched those books as a kid. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's how any kid comes to a series of books really is through someone sharing it. With Certainly them. through commercial organically or or, 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 or not. librarian or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my son, who's now too old for them, but when he was, you know, in third, fourth grade, he, I think, read every one of those who was books, you know, mm-hmm. the who was FDR and who was whatever. And, and FDR became his favorite president at like, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> I yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny how like people like kids will just like latch on to a topic. Yeah. And, and I'm also so jealous of you growing up in Boston, because that that's one of my niche interests is like, you know, the American Revolution and, and you know, Plymouth, and it's all right there. And I, I visited. Jen desperately wants to steal the Declaration of Independence. Unironically, one of my favorite uh, museum movies. Yeah, no, she legitimately loves treasure. that movie without no, I any like shame. It too. Oh, it's no, great. No, listen, you two are both wrong, um, <laughs> and that's fine. I love and respect you both in different ways, but like, it's so good. She lets the Declaration of Independence get hit by a semi truck. Listen, you gotta have a little bit of drama. Um, <laughs> so take the hit, roll into it. <laughs> Okay, um, so I, do we want to talk about the books, the the Dear America books? Yeah, first, let's or do we jump want to talk into about... these two books. Okay, okay. Yeah. So first off, yeah, I want to get what you thought overall of the two books. If you were just to compare and contrast the two books, um, and and the action therein, what do you think the books succeeded at? Where do you think they failed? Okay, so um, I think that's a, a pretty easy thing to do mm-hmm. so I have mine here yeah. um, um I was completely perplexed and I have to say I mean I know about the Dear America books but mm-hmm. until you reached out to me I don't know that I'd ever read any of them because as I think I told you in the initial call um I was too old for them and my yeah. kids were too young for them so it's kind of in between mm-hmm. um so I, I just randomly started with emma simpson i'm not really sure why i probably should have done it the other way but um <laughs> it's our fault we told <laughs> well i don't understand and I, I listened to your episode about this and and i 100 percent agree with you that that I, I don't understand what this guy this author was trying mm-hmm. to do and yeah. i don't know 
understand why he chose to write about this character. Yes. Because I don't know what kids are supposed to take away from this. Yeah. Cody book, I mean, there's so much. We could spend you know so much time on that one, and we can yeah. spend for as little as you want. But But I just don't understand. I'm sitting here thinking, who told you this was the approach to take? If you want to do a white Southerner, why not do, you could do a working class white Southerner. Mm -hmm. Um, You could do a Confederate sympathizer in the North. Mm -hmm. You could do um, a family. Um, One of my students, maybe a decade ago now, she's a, a librarian. Um, but, um, one of my students is from a town outside or a county right outside of, of, um, high point called Randolph County. It's, um, Southern and very, you know, she talked about, you know, all the Confederate flags on trucks in her parking lot of her high school and whatever. And so she was really interested in, in researching the history of the civil war in her county. And what she found was that it was a place where, confederate deserters went and where they Mm. protected people because it was a very poor county and there you know there weren't almost any slaveholders there and and so now this place that is a a confederate you know i mean this was 10 years ago but i can't imagine it's changed that much right um, the that they have all these confederate flags and heritage not hate and all this stuff Mm -hmm. in the 1860s they were trying to keep their sons and husbands and brothers out of Confederacy mm. and they were out of the army and they were hiding them. So there are yeah. so many interesting stories that you can tell about the white South or about white Confederates. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he chose to tell this one. I, I think he was, this is just my personal theory. I feel like he comes from the generation of people who would have been awed by Gone with the Wind. Mm. And he's trying to create a more palatable Scarlett O'Hara. It felt very Gone with the Wind, doesn't me. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very right to the end when what's the the enslaved person's the woman Iris? Yeah, goes, and goes with her and her husband, and and they live. You know, she uh, she he doesn't say that they, she serves them, but I presume that it's she's implied. Absolutely, it's and very mammy ish. <laughs> it's very like you know, it, it's very much what we don't need right now mm-hmm. right and there's you know so i don't really understand who thought this book was a good idea yeah i would like yeah. to talk to scholastic please i would like to talk to yes yeah, scholastic the, the publishing team barry denenberg himself i think and barry I, well, has another book say, coming up yeah jen didn't you say he had another book that you like much better? yeah he he's written uh he wrote several books i i don't have the list on uh with me right now but he wrote probably five or six books for this series and some of them are some of my favorite books now i haven't reread them uh since i was a kid uh but i from my memory i think he got a lot better at (laughs) writing uh, a more nuanced take on history or or certainly not like you know the what gone with the wind for kids i i mean it was just i yeah we we're right there with you where i was just like why does why is it this story uh it's really interesting what you said about that small town that harbored um confederate runaways and i think the the part that i wish they they delved into more 
with Emma's story, if if that's indeed the story that's going to be told, is the difference in the in the experience of war between her father, who is a Confederate officer, and her her beau, you know, the Tally, yeah. who's who's a young uh, enlisted man. And I think there's something to explore there, where. Um, you know, people who are really in it for the true cause, who are privileged, who are wealthy, who are the officers, have a totally different experience of war than someone who is still probably fairly privileged, all things considered, but an enlisted private. And, and you do get a lot of those disillusioned soldiers who would end up deserting. And what if, you know, what if he ended up deserting? And what what if she had to, like, grapple with that? And, and kind of, like, southern images of, of gentlemanly honor versus, like, the reality of war, which is not polite or, or gentlemanly at all. Right. Um, and yeah, it, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suspect, and I'm not a military historian, I'm not an expert on the Civil War, um, but I suspect Tally would have been pretty privileged within the Army, too. Mm-hmm. It would have been yeah. cool to... What if she had a, a boyfriend who who wasn't mm-hmm. ripped, right? Because I think it was more often the working class whites who who deserted. I don't yeah. have the data in front of me, and maybe I'm totally wrong. But mm-hmm. um, the 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 fight was to protect the power structure and an institution Tally, that they didn't benefit much from. Right, mm-hmm. right, and Tally would have been part of that power structure. So mm-hmm. um, it really does reinforce a lot of the problematic myths. And I know that, you know, wealthy white families in the South suffered too. I'm not mm-hmm. saying they didn't. Of course they did, especially in Virginia. Um, but um, I just didn't really understand why this book existed at all. And I wouldn't have wanted to hand it to my kids when they were younger. Yeah, I think that's what really frustrated me was like, I remember reading that book. And, you know, you're just, you could look at it in hindsight and be like, oh, well, this is a good lesson on, you know, an unreliable narrator, or, um, you know, this is something that you really have to sift through and and really question the the point of view of the main character and their values but i just don't think that they do a good job of like presenting that to kids in a way that it's just presented with you know just here it is and kids aren't gonna necessarily do that on their own i sort of wonder if you know how when we were planning out episodes of the podcast and we just didn't have a subject Mm-hmm. Right, and we would just whatever idea we came. Oh, you mean the previous podcast? The, yes, yeah. the previous podcast. <laughs> I was like, we have a plan now because Jen has a plan. It's like a thirty-page spreadsheet. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but originally, you know, for our for our first show, you know, we'd be casting around for ideas, and I feel like they had really good ideas, really good strong ideas for the Mayflower book mm. and the Valley Forge book, and. Not so much here. And they were like, well, screw it. We have to meet this deadline. Let's just get it out. Well, and I think part of it is I I can kind of see an idea of them hitting the main points of American history um, before they kind of get into some of the more niche aspects. And I think from their perspective, seeing like, well, here's the typical thing of like what you hear about the Civil War, but just like a little to the left because it's about a Southerner instead of a, a Northerner. Um, and then they start to kind of like pick away at that later, you know, with the next book in particular. Right. Um, but I, yeah, again, like, I don't think they did that very well in a way that doesn't just a kid reading it isn't going to just take it face value. Yeah. So, um, oh, I lost it. 
but um, yeah, I mean, oh, I know what I was going to say that uh, you can't expect a, a 10 year old, which I guess, you know, the age range for this would probably be like nine, 10, 11, probably. Yeah. Or, um, you can't expect a, a 10 year old to recognize an unreliable narrator on their no. own. And so there's no hint of it at all. Um, on the other hand, enough of Emma. If we yeah. go to Christy, unless you want to talk more. No, about no, it gets no, a little tiresome really, to just um, constantly dump on a book. So let's move on to one. I think, Claudia is, I think Claudia is great. And I think it does so much of what we need to be doing um, in terms of um, showing the, the different ways that enslaved people experienced slavery and um, the violence, which was central to the experience and the separation of families and the resistance. Mm. And, you know, she has agency um, that, you know, Emma doesn't really have at all. And yeah. um, enough dumping on Emma. I'm done. I think that that's so much of what we see in Clodie is exactly the kind of story that I want my students to get when we talk about um, the experiences of enslaved people and when I teach them Frederick Douglass or when I teach them, um, you know, other enslavement narratives. Um, education is central, right, and trying to get the idea of education and they even talk about how um, do they say they say that she'll get whipped if they know that mm. she can read? Do they say yeah. that it's against the law? I don't remember. Um, Not... I don't think they're clear on that. Right. Um, no, I don't. I don't think they say as much so clearly, um, or or that there certainly were laws in different states where, you know, if you were teaching enslaved people how to read, that you know you the person who has the power to teach are yeah. the person who can be in trouble. Um, and yeah. so it's, it's a really interesting, complex thing. And the whole thing is really ultimately about labor organization or like breaking down the ability to organize. Mm. So it has a lot of powerful thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to get a little political for just like a half step. Oh, but no. there's a reason why <laughs> people who have a vested interest in keeping the power structure as it is do not want to put investments in schooling. Mm. Right. Right. There's a reason that our schools have been defunded in really radical ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also to continue being political, like uh, book banning has not historically oh um, promoted education or, or progressive ideologies. Um <laughs> The state of Florida um, recently, within the last two weeks, put in narratives within the way that they teach the history of chattel slavery mm -hmm. that talks about how people who were enslaved learned valuable skills that they would right. use to make money. Yeah. Okay. You are aware, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say it. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> I just saw an article on that. I think they did it yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, really recently. So, yeah, um, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be a history teacher or a professor in mm -hmm. art. Um, 
and you know it's not just florida it's texas and and you know mm. I'll, I'll get a little political for a minute here north carolina is not all that far behind yeah um, they're passing some of the same laws in our state and i know high school teachers in north carolina and and they're scared Mm-hmm. You know, scared they're going to lose their jobs. They're scared they're going to get thrown in jail. Yes, um, yeah, absolutely. Because once again, we're looking to penalize the people who would give power mm. to the people who need it. Yeah. Right. That's my soapbox. Sorry. No, so, no I, I, I'm with you. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, Clody really focuses on the value of literacy and the the pain of of losing literacy. Um, I'll go off on a little tangent here just for a second, because I had this really cool opportunity this spring at Chapel Hill. Um, they did an opera, and I don't know if you all know the singer named Rhiannon Giddens. Um, yes. So, Sorry. Um, yeah, so she um, she's from Greensboro, okay. and, um, which is where I live, and um, she has done all this amazing stuff. And um, she just produced an opera called Omar, um, which has only been shown like three places in the world, somewhere in Paris or Rome or something, and then in Los Angeles and then at Chapel Hill. And I have uh, one of my colleagues on campus is an opera singer, and he took me to see the performance. He said Omar was a, um, an, a, a prince, I think Senegalese or a an aristocrat from Senegal who was captured into slavery mm. and ended up being um, owned by one of the trustees at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. And but but what's really fascinating about this is that he was a Quran scholar. Huh, and, cool. um, and so the show is all about literacy and um, the implications of, of losing literacy because mm. the show starts with him on one of those silk screens writing in Arabic and there's Arabic everywhere on the costumes and, and print and, and literacy is so central to the story that I had to go back to my students two days after I saw the show and say, okay, we have to talk about what we just saw um, or what I just saw. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have taken them all. But mm. um, so I think the literacy angle here is is spot on. I think the violence and the family separation is yes. spot on. Um, I, I think that I thought it was very interesting. Um, one of the places I was, I would have chosen to do it a different way mm-hmm. uh, with Mr. Harms. Um, I, I was curious that they made him or that the author made him Virginian. And mm. it's not that there wasn't um, abolition happening in very small numbers in Virginia. I know there were some, but most of the abolitionists in the South had to leave the South, like mm-hmm. you think about the Grimke sisters in South Carolina. And, yes. and um, I was wondering, A, I was wondering why she called him Mr. Harms, because I thought that It's a was, misleading name. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised mm. by that. And then I was wondering why she, um, chose to make him from Virginia. I don't think that's a fatal flaw or anything, but I would have done something different um, Mm. or at least made him from, you know, somewhere more neutral, like Kentucky or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you got to imagine if he was from like Pennsylvania or New York or so. A dead giveaway. Boston, you know, like there's no way they would hire a tutor from (laughs) from up north. Kentucky or or, I don't know. But... Mm. I don't know. I mean, 
I mean, I guess you're right. I didn't think about that. They wouldn't hire a tutor from Pennsylvania or New York or something like that. But um, I thought the Harms name was odd. Mm. Uh, but J.K. I, Rowling I, would never. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to go down the J.K. Rowling. <laughs> we don't need to talk about it. Listen, <laughs> everybody knows I'm a liberal. Liberal as the day is long. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just, I thought that was strange. And... Mm. Um, I thought that uh, the agency that they gave to um, Clody was really great. Mm. I wish they had shown some of the religious connection that was often connected with the white abolitionists too. Um, because Quakers. we this you know, Quakers or, or others, um, you know, John Brown wasn't a Quaker and I don't necessarily want to glorify John Brown, but, um, but, um, you know, one of the th things that really concerns me is we think about Christianity as, uh, an instrument of the political right, but mm -hmm. a lot of American history, it's also been, a instrument of the political left right yeah, yeah so, there's there's i mean there's just as many if not more verses about you know years of jubilee and and freedom from slavery and and all that that the abolitionists use um all all the time and and can still be used um yeah there is a very um we 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 get kind of overexposed in this country to the conservative right um version of Christianity. And I think that can grate on, on the political left-leaning people uh, in or this even, group. Um, the center, right? I mean, the, the, or the center, yeah. So, um, Does the center exist anymore? I'm, I'm not so sure. But I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm making small criticisms here oh, uh, yeah. in the first book, which, you know, there are some small things that I would have done differently, but mm -hmm. I think I would be happy to hand this book to you know, fourth graders, fifth graders. And mm -hmm. I think it's a really good starting point. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things that I'm, I'm working on in, in a bunch of my projects is how do you present the history of enslavement mm -hmm. that children can understand without oversimplifying it to a point that it's so distorted that, that they're starting off with the wrong idea. And I think that yeah. this does a really good job of, of, you know, balancing that. Yeah, I think when... Uh, some of the things I really admired about this book, and I think you can tell that it's written by a woman of color and not, you know, a white man, is that it gives, no as, you, as, as you say about, it gives it Clody um, agency. And, and it talks about, and it, it talks very frankly about the violence of slavery that doesn't, you know, is in no way like whitewashing it or, or like de or like sanitizing it. But it also isn't like, you know how some ways like white people can talk about slavery in terms of I guess, I guess to use a kind of crass term for a torture porn you know it's like yeah where it's it's kind of like this kind of gratuitous violence that isn't really serving the narrative whereas this it's like it's it's very much pointedly it's like balanced enough that yeah. it feels true and, but like the but the characters like Clotie and her, and her friends are still given agency and power to talk about how they feel about it uh to 
be angry at the oppressors, um, but also intelligent enough to like outwit them and and make choices about how they're going to live their lives. Um, just like the end where Cloti decides, as much as I want freedom, I think it's important to help others get freedom. And so she chooses to stay. I loved that moment in the book. It where gives she... me chills. Oh. You think that's, do you think that's a little too Hollywood? As I, I, was, as I don't I care, was I'll take it. <laughs> As I was watching that, as I was reading that, I was like, this doesn't feel true to the way the rest of the book has been, right? Yeah, I think that's a very fair criticism. Um, But, I mean, I get why she did it, and Mm -hmm. I don't have a huge problem with it, but I I did wonder about that. And one of the other moments that that I thought was really well done was when they talked about Hinch's um, father and Mm. not who he was mm-hmm. and his father sorry hints his father and and you know when spicy tells him he's not really black or whatever and, mm-hmm. and um, uncle heb comes in and and sort of moderates the discussion and i, I thought that was a really well mm-hmm. executed explanation without getting into the torture porn elements or yeah the, the, yes. the rape elements that is yeah not- all of these books that we've read so far have all skated this issue of, I mean, just because they're female characters, Mm -hmm. but specifically female sexual assault has been an underlying theme. We, We see the threads of it in every book. And it's been so fascinating to see them say the quiet part loud, um, more so. As loud right, as they right, can. Right, for right, kids, right, right, right. For fourth graders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I actually balked about mentioning this. I yeah. wasn't going to bring it up um, because it's not something that we want Jen's baby uh, niece to hear. Yeah. And ultimately, Ruby is what who we're doing this for. So... <laughs> But she's but she's nine. She's kind of in that she's the younger end of that target demographic. So yeah, yeah it's it's important to see like okay, this is the kind of uh, topics that are being hinted at. And I was reading those books at that age too. And it's and like I can remember not entirely getting it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but well, but like there the will Judy be children who do. Yeah. Yes. Like the Judy Bloom books, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. Some of that stuff you didn't get, and, and that was my age demographic. Those books mm-hmm. came out for me, um, and and I inhaled all of them. And um, you know, I didn't get everything in the books, but right. I back later. And uh, unlike you know some of the books that I've read since and gone back to, mm-hmm. and I'm horrified by, I go back to the Judy Bloom books. And I'm like, yeah, these books are still great. Yeah. And you know, it might be a little seventies ish, but um, but that's okay. <laughs> what was wrong with the 70s? The, well, okay. Arguably uh, a lot, but I love the, the 70s. But, you're but talking to a girl wearing a Rocky Horror Picture Show shirt, so I'm very enamored with the 70s. Yeah. Well, I lived through them, so I mean, okay. I was little, but I lived through them. Um, and um, they were they were different times. We can, we can leave it at mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? And this is really one of the things that reading these books from our past – um, ha- and, you know, the past generally, it's amazing how much our culture has changed, even in the last 15, 16 years. Um, the books, like if we were to rewrite this series, I think a lot of the main touchstones of each book would be the same. But I think culturally, a lot of things would be different. 
Um, and if you were to pitch these books again to Scholastic, what what would you encourage them to update for a modern audience? So that's really interesting because I haven't thought about doing that in terms of a book series. But, uh, you know, you all know that I'm working on this project to try to reboot uh, uh, short videos like Schoolhouse Rock. Mm-hmm. Um and we've been thinking a lot. We've got a whole really great team of people working on this project. And um, we've been thinking a lot about what is it that we want the students, to, the, the viewers to get from these. And so I think it'd be the same question. And for me, it's two things. And I think generally we're doing one really pretty well in the last 20 years and one we're not doing so well. Um, and the one that I think we're doing pretty well, and I think that Dear America does pretty well, at least from what I can tell, is representation, right? You want to get books and stories coming from all different classes, genders, um, regions of the country, um, races, religions. You want to get a wide representation. And you all would know better than me because I haven't read the other ones. But I, I'm guessing that Dear America does a pretty good job of that. Um, What I think a lot of the stuff that, you know, that certainly the past Schoolhouse Rock episodes and other shows like Liberty's Kids, I don't know if you Mm. guys- Oh yeah. I have the entire collection. Yeah. So Liberty's Kids is great at that, almost to a point of absurdity, right? Like there were like 250 Mm -hmm. Jews in the American colonies, but you have to have a Jewish character. Absolutely you do. So, So, but what they're not so great about is um, one of the criticisms I've seen of Liberty's kids is they don't really show the kids the context of what it means to be black or mm. female or something, or, you know, not a white Christian male right. in the revolutionary era because uh, the enslaved people can just put their mind to it and escape. And the female <laughs> yeah. character whose name I can't remember, Catherine, yep. I can't remember. Is it Catherine? It is. Um, is it because it's your name too? That's um, that is why one of the reasons I remember, but also I watched a lot of Liberty's Kids. So she can just kind of wander around the colonies unchaperoned, which right. you know, wouldn't have been not a thing. In in the for a a young woman of good breeding in the seventeen yeah. hundreds. So they don't show the context very well. And the other thing that I think a lot of, you know, not just kids' history, but a lot of the popular history we get, period doesn't do well is show how change actually happens we Mm. make it great man or great woman Mm. you know hidden figures these these women just kind of change things Mm. or um you know the martin luther king or rosa parks or throw in whatever um and it's it's a great man or a great woman who comes in and of course the problem with that is if, if you're not a Dr. King or a Rosa Parks, then you're kind of sitting around and waiting for the people. Mm, to... Just waiting for a savior. And and what we don't talk about is how just to pick the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, the reason the bus boycott worked in Montgomery wasn't so much about Dr. King or Rosa Parks as it was the, the infrastructure that mm. was already in place with the NAACP having been in Montgomery for 20 years. And they had this group of people led by Joanne Robinson, who is a professor at Alabama State University, you know, historically black college, um, who were able to organize the boycott because the boycott didn't happen because Rosa Parks sat down and Martin stood up. 
it happened because these people, mostly women, um, mimeographed, you know, who knows how many thousands of of um, copies of the the posters and the the rideshare schedules. And remember, back in the fifties, they were this yeah. one it. press a button; they had to manually do it by hand. <laughs> And so Joanne Robinson talks about how she was up all night the first night cranking out 10,000 copies of the the posters to get people to stay off the buses and they were organizing ride shares and and that, you know, the change happens not so much from these great people, but um, from the people who organize and the people who do the the grunt work, because so many Mm -hmm. of my students, they get mad and they they go to a march, whether it was the racial justice marches in 2020 or a climate march or something like that. They go to a march or they go to two marches or three marches or a couple meetings and and they say, you know, nothing's changing. Why am I doing this? And mm-hmm. I say to them, you know, it took 80 years for women to get the right to vote. It took, yeah. you know, black people 100 years to get the right to vote mm-hmm. and that's after the end of slavery. Right. And, so, um, and stuff doesn't always happen you know, it doesn't always go progress from, from worse to better. It goes up yeah. and down. Sometimes you think things are getting better. And right now it feels like they're getting worse. Yeah. And, so, you know, those are the kinds of things that I would want in the in the scholastic books. Those are the kinds of things, you know, how does change actually happen? Yeah. Um, Through that grind and being willing to put in the hours yeah, and, and be organizing and it's ordinary people and, yeah. you know, people handing the knowledge down from one person to the next, you know, they don't know who um, uh, Ella Baker is, you know, mo- almost none of my students. I do a, I, I do when I teach the long uh, freedom struggle, the black freedom struggle, I start by saying, oh, I just throw, start throwing out names. And I say, how many of you know Martin Luther King? Every hand yeah. goes up. <laughs> every hand goes up. How many of you know Malcolm X? Almost every hand goes up. And then we start, you know, how many of you know Ella Baker? Almost none of them do. Mm-hmm. Um, Admittedly, many, it's not a name I'm familiar with. Yeah, so Ella Baker was uh, an organizer, probably the most important organizer of the movement in the middle of the 20th century. And she starts all the way back with the communists in the 1930s. And now she, you're getting into ter- tricky American territory. Yeah, she works with the NAACP and she works with SCLC, which is the ministers and Dr. King. And then, you know, do you guys know what SNCC is? The student organization in the 60s that came out of the, the sit-ins in the 1960s. Oh, yeah. No, but I'm so glad to. So the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which becomes known as SNCC, S-N-C-C. And it's, it's initially, um, they are, are very almost socialistic. They don't want to have, they're kind of the opposite of, the, the ministers where they say, we don't want to have a great leader. We want to have, you know, all of us working together. And John Lewis is the first president, but mm-hmm. he doesn't have the power of, you know, somebody like a Dr. King. And right. they organize all the sit-ins. And, and Ella Baker is the one who's had 30 years of experience at this point, And she's teaching them how to organize. Mm. And nobody knows who she is. And people don't know Joanne Robinson, the organizer of the boycott. And everybody knows Jackie Robinson, but nobody knows Moses Fleetwood Walker. Um, mm. You guys don't know that name, do you? No, no. No, so Moses Fleetwood Walker, everybody says Jackie Robinson was the first black major league baseball player, and that's wrong. He integrated the league, but there were black major leaguers in the 1880s. Yes, that's true. Moses, Moses Fleetwood Walker played in the highest level of professional baseball in the 1880s. And the reason that's important is because 
we just sort of if, if kids only know about Jackie Robinson, they say, well, that was just naturally the way things were. Mm. And, you know, things changed. Right. And, mm-hmm. but, but no, it wasn't naturally the way things were. People had to make things segregated. Things weren't naturally yeah. segregated. And there's this moment, there's this period in between emancipation and 1865. And we really start, historians Mm -hmm. really start by thinking about Jim Crow as starting around 1890, because that's the first time that you see uh, an openly discriminatory piece of writing in the Mississippi State Constitution. And it takes about 15 years for Jim Crow to go from the Deep South up to like Virginia. Um, but you've got this 25 year period between 1865 and 1890 where people like Moses Fleetwood Walker lived and Jim Crow wasn't inevitable. Yeah. It, didn't, it, it, it didn't have to, you know, students get taught we went from slavery to Jim Crow. Well, no, we didn't. We had a 25 mm-hmm. year period in between where black people were getting elected to state legislatures. Black people were getting elected to Congress. Yeah. People were, you know, owning land and, and you know really succeeding Mm -hmm. and even though they came out of emancipation with nothing you know they didn't get they didn't get reparations in 1865 they didn't get any money in 1865 and they so they started so far behind but they were succeeding Mm -hmm. and then the door shut on them again so i gave you a really sorry i got up on my soapbox no i I loved it yeah (laughs) i love a soapbox but um so what i actually before i let you run away for your future michigan trip yeah. I want you to know that we have at Ferris State University, which is about an hour north of Grand Rapids, oh. uh, there is the Jim Crow Museum. Uh, it's the American Museum of Racist Imagery, affectionately known as the Jim Crow Museum. Mm-hmm. And it's well worth the trip. All right. Good to know. Okay. Side note. Sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, that's that's the, the message that we're trying to get through in the the schoolhouse rock type videos. And Mm. um, that's the message that I would do with um, the Dear America books is I want to see, you know, what I like about, about Clody is that she has agency as we already talked about, right? Uh She can make change happen. And she's not waiting for Frederick Douglass or John Mm -hmm. Brown down. I was a little worried as I'm reading this is, oh, is John Brown going to come in? And then, um, (laughs) but um, that we, we didn't have, John Brown or Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman mm-hmm. um, and and these names that that the um, kids will know mm-hmm. um, it was her she did it and yeah. there was ordinary people doing it and ordinary people are the ones who usually make the change happen the the, the big names can lead it but we don't get sustainable change unless we get organization and, and all of these quotes are so wonderful <laughs> Yeah, you're a very quotable te- uh, doctor, <laughs> professor, teacher. Yeah, you Thank really. You. I want to put them on T-shirts. Well, and and organizing <laughs> is is like one of our special uh, <laughs> passions. Um, so yeah, you're really speaking our language. Uh, one of the things that I was afraid of reading uh, before reading them, the uh, Clotie's story was, um, I knew that there was this like white abolitionist character that was going to be introduced, and I was terrified that it was going to be this very white savory like here poor little black girl let me teach you how to yeah it was i was so worried and uh i it it turned out great like yeah yeah. she did it really well (laughs) yeah so so another another kudos so any Mm -hmm. any complaints i have here are of the very small Mm -hmm. that, that you know she she did a great job 
I do see your point about, you know, the ending where she chooses to stay. There is something very noble and, you know, self-sacrificial about it. Perhaps a little outside of reality. And maybe, you know, maybe it it is okay to have a main character, you know, save her own skin for for now and just be like, I really feel passionate about this, but also like I've had a rough life and I'm a kid and I deserve to have my own life and not have to be this like sacrificial you know figure uh so yeah i i could see both sides of that how cool would it have been if she had gotten freed and she made her way up north and she ended up speaking with people who knew phyllis wheatley yeah right like speaking of like black women with literacy agency Mm -hmm. right that would be super cool so, but I mean, I'm also thinking on the other side of this too, because I, I would probably wouldn't have done it that way. But if you look at the history of black women, and again, I am not a specialist, but <laughs> um, if you look at the history of black women, a lot of it is is kind of uncelebrated work behind the scenes. Most of mm-hmm. the people that we know are, are the people who, you know, are men and standing up and speaking and even Rosa Parks. I don't know if you all have seen the new Rosa Parks documentary that came out. Maybe. No, but I heard it was excellent. It's really good. And I knew some of it, but not all of it. Like she, she like Ella Baker has this 30, 40 year, you know, organizing history. And all we know her for is sitting down on the bus seat on December, mm-hmm. I think September 1st, 1955 or whatever it is. But, um, but we should know so much more about her than that. Yeah, absolutely. She was a very cool figure from what I've read just in little snippets and pieces. I have never studied her in depth because I thought sitting down was all of it. And I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Watch the documentary. It's definitely worth it. I showed it to my students and they were blown away. So um, definitely worth it. Excellent. Mm. I will make it. I have a a list of documentaries. Um, Me and my husband do a Friday night movie. And sometimes we got to break up you know, the drama and comedy with something of a doc. But we're already doing the Barkley Marathon this week, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to that one. Jeffrey, can I see our paper? Yeah, well, I think um, we have talked a lot about the books. Um, I, I I think we could talk endlessly about the books. I, I did have a bunch of more questions about them. I think maybe I'll use this as a way to kind of transition to um, your book. Um, but um, you've talked a little bit about, like, how – how you would present or how you would sell like an your version of a Dear America book. Um, uh, going back just lightly to to Emma's story, and we've talked a little bit about um, like how, you, how what kind of a different character you would choose. Um, like, is there? A, I'm wondering if there is a way to kind of tell a story like Emma's without like giving unintentionally advocating for for that worldview, or or is it just kind of like down to kind of curating like whose story is okay to be told and who we can just like not focus on i don't know i mean i remember when you were um talking about these books on your earlier episode mm-hmm. you were talking about the diary of what's her name i'm blanking from south carolina um who was in oh oh mary, mary chestnut. chestnut mary mm-hmm. chestnut yeah mm-hmm. i mean you could do something really interesting on a kind of a Amer- I mean she's too old for this obviously yeah. but but you could create like a fictional younger version of Mary right. Chester. All these books about actual people are they all true stories or like based on true stories the Dear America books or Well none of them none of the okay so there's the the Royal Diaries which is like kind of a sub 
version. Um, those are all about real royal figures. Um, uh, but none of the Dear America books are about real. Not to the best of my knowledge. None of the like main characters okay. are. So, oh, okay. so like so Emma we, Simpson wasn't a real person. No, but um, she feels real in that she respect that she was real. boring. Well, and then it and <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it just continues to beg the question of like why tell this story. Um, but occasionally you will have people like uh, the the Valley Forge book we read. Uh, they interact a lot with the Washingtons, <laughs> so it's very much so, that like oh, there's. The I was gonna person. do if I was gonna do a white female antebellum or like civil war era mm -hmm. character i would probably put it in a city i'd probably put her yeah. in new orleans to mm -hmm. get out of the idea of you know the the tara and the, yeah. the plantation and, and um so i would probably do that just off the top of my head mm -hmm. uh, i would probably make her working class but even if we were going to do something um that was middle class or wealthy um I, I think there was interesting stuff happening where women were having to do a lot of the things that men normally did during the mm -hmm. war because such a larger percentage of white men in the confederacy had to go fight because their population was so much smaller yeah. and the ones who stayed had to be left behind to control the enslaved people so women were farming women were you know, working in jobs that they normally wouldn't have had. I mean, shipyards. Could, yeah, well, you could. I don't know that there was a Rosie the Riveter for a mm -hmm. for this war, but exactly where my head was too. Yeah, I, I knew to put that right up. there. Oh, yeah, I got it. Um, but um, I mean, I think there's a lot more opportunity for showing them engaging. Like you said, not a lot happens in this book because she's mm -hmm. off on by herself so if she's living in yeah. Richmond, new orleans or charleston um then i think that there would be a lot of opportunity to do interesting stuff and if you did new orleans which got recaptured much earlier in the war than than um richmond did then you'd have you'd be able to deal with all this stuff well what are we going to do with the enslaved people now yeah. that the, uh so I, I i think i wouldn't have picked i i don't think we need any more yeah White plantation girls i think no we've got... i think you're right <laughs> <laughs> and i'm not saying you know they should be canceled or anything but but i don't think we need a lot more of that i think we've had a lot of that so if i was going to yeah. do a wealthy southerner i would put her in a different place i i like the idea of kind of recasting mary chestnut as a younger girl because like you get that perspective like one of the things that was really interesting about mary chestnut's very real diary is that she is kind of as i, I think i said in the episode she's like the forrest gump of the confederacy she's yeah. just like she witnesses everything and so it'd be interesting to have that perspective of like being inside those rooms where like all these you know important people are and all these important conversations are happening in the uh the room where it happened yeah yeah if you will <laughs> uh but uh but also like i wouldn't do that without like having some kind of like way to question those ideals and i think that's what was really missing from from emma's story besides tally one, one of, almost got it tally was so close so close but and then they he just was like, didn't finish the thought but ultimately i still believe in our glorious <laughs> like it's just like, <laughs> yeah but i would have you wanted to have some agency too right yeah. that's mm -hmm. the word i keep i i always go back to and and you know so putting her in the room where it happened and one of the things i 
you know, don't get me started on Forrest Gump, but um, I have a whole theory about the the southern tilt of Hollywood from yeah. from Birth of a Nation to Gone with the Wind. <gasps> oh, that would be a great class. Oh wow! But can okay. you imagine? Forrest Gump fits right in, yeah. but Forrest Gump has no agency, right? Um, yeah. So, so you know, give her something to do. And what mm-hmm. did the what did the rich white women do during the Civil War in Charleston or in Richmond? They didn't just sit around and do nothing because mm-hmm. they were starving. Yeah. And they, so, so they had to do something. So, what were these people doing? And show them doing mm-hmm. something instead yeah. of just. And-, and I, I think that's like, kind of that that gets to the flaw of of what the author, you know, wrote was that you just, I feel like you didn't really ask those questions. Sorry, yeah. just one second. Uh, there is a book that might fit exactly what you're describing. Um, it's a novelization of a diary, as I recall. Um, it's called Widow of the South. Hmm. And it's about a, you know, a woman who has maybe not a palatial estate, it's not a plantation, but she ends up running it as a hospital of sorts when a battle breaks out in her yard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Just as you were talking, it was like, I've read oh, this book. Something like that. Yeah. 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 The I think has, the girl has to help with the, I mean, because they did all of these palatial mm-hmm. houses turned into hospitals and, right. and there are a lot of them did, not all of them, but mm-hmm. um, give her something to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Give her something to do and also some avenue to kind of question yeah. at least, you know, like have those conversations of like, is this what I believe is, you know, and even if it feels tacky to have her have a complete conversion to the abolitionist cause, like I can see that not being realistic. It would at least kind of like interrogate that worldview yeah, a little even bit. Even if she could come up as sympathetic to the abolitionist because yeah. Emma never does. No, she doesn't. <laughs> it's just, it's wild. Come up about the horrors of war, right? Even if you, exactly. don't, if you don't change your mind on abolition, you know, change, change it. Think about, well, was this war worth it? Exactly. Or the men who yeah. are like, if she's working in a hospital and she's looking at, you know, the farmer, the, the, the dirt poor who's, who's farmer's son. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And like, again, we know. got close with Tally. Right. And we then got just, so yeah. close. Skated right past. <laughs> but anyway, I would read that book. Yeah. I would read that book. Let's move on. Yeah, before uh, I get on a soapbox again uh, from bummers. But let's let's talk about let's talk about your uh, upcoming book, Kid History yeah. Inc. Um, I'm so excited by this premise. Thank you. Yeah. Um, how did you get inspired to write it? Well, so initially, after I wrote my first book, which was uh, called Commercializing Childhood, and is about basically how we train children to become consumers through children's <laughs> magazines. Yeah. Not to be like, I love you, but I love you. I'm going to read all these books. <laughs> right? I've, so I've already ordered this. So okay. So um, a lot of, I got asked by a couple of publishers to do a sequel on the 20th century. And I just wasn't interested in doing that because mm-hmm. it got, things got very different and you don't have, you know, highlights is everybody asked me, is this like a 19th century highlights? I'm like, no, it's so much more like Mark Twain was writing for these, these magazines and, and Louisa May Alcott was writing for these magazines and, mm. and all of this stuff. And so I, I wanted to do something completely different. And so I started another project that is still sitting on my back burner, but for various reasons, didn't really come together. It's about sports and sports fandom in you know, the early 20th century Boston. And it's a, a kind of indirectly and maybe directly, depending on how I do it, about my grandparents who grew up in South Boston, one of them Catholic and one of them Jewish and wow. in the early 1900s <laughs> and, and, you know, the sort of the storm that was created by their marriage. Um, yeah, I bet. 
So, um, so that book didn't come together for a bunch of reasons. Um, and so um, a friend of mine asked me to do an article for uh, the Public Historian Journal, um, which is the, the, the major public history journal. And she said, I want you to do something on childhood and consumer culture, um, but you can do whatever you want. And so I started thinking around and I started asking my friends just on like social media, like, mm -hmm. what do you remember about what you learned about childhood, um, about history as a kid? Mm -hmm. You know, all my friends are in their 40s and 50s and um, grew up in the 70s and 80s. And they all said, well, I don't remember a thing about what I learned in school, but I can sing the Constitution from school. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I, I that took me to Schoolhouse Rock and I wrote an article for the public historian that came out about two years ago on Schoolhouse Rock and the, the history of it and and um, how they came up with the history of the, the season that they did on U.S. history for the bicentennial and how I think we can do it better now and mm -hmm. using really picture books. Um, using a, a, a series of, of modern picture books that do a better job on telling kids history than Schoolhouse Rock did in the 70s. And then I started, um, by that point, the, the racial justice marches of the of the 2020, of 2020 had happened. Mm -hmm. The backlash had started to happen against critical race theory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I, I started thinking about you know, as we see all these um, schools taking this stuff out of out of the curriculum, how are we going to teach kids this if they're not going to get it in school? And I, I kind of came, well, all my friends said they don't remember anything they learned in school. They remember what they learned from Schoolhouse Rock or what yeah. they learned from Liberty's Kids or what they learned from, you know, Dear America, Dear America. Or, yes. or whatever. Um, There's so these other that, avenues. Right. So I said, you know, what if I did a book on how we've taught kids history through entertainment? Yeah. And kind of goes with what I did before with commercializing childhood. And, and you know, the first chapter is going to be on children's books and children's magazines. So some mm -hmm. of the ground that I've covered a little bit before. But if you look at it, there's a, a pretty neat development that almost every generation you get a new medium of children's entertainment starting in the 1860s and 70s with books and magazines and then around 1900 you start getting american toys um you had the kids have toys before that but the big american toy industry really starts around 1900 mm -hmm. and in the 20s and 30s, you get Hollywood. And really the 30s, the children's movies start coming. And then the 50s, you get television and Disney World and the theme parks. Mm -hmm. The 50s is really a decade of Disney. And that's what I was actually working on this morning. The mm -hmm. Ballad of Davy Crockett. Wait, just that one chapter? Because also the idea of the 50s as the decade of Disney's would be a book that sold on its own. Yeah. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah, the, the emergence of Disneyland and, and the Davy Crockett TV show and the Coonskin oh, Caps and, yeah. and, you know, Born on the Mountaintop in Tennessee, which he wasn't. Um, right. but, um, but and, and then the next chapter is going to be Schoolhouse Rock and how we handled the bicentennial, because the other thing is 2026 is coming. Right. We're going to get mm -hmm. the 50th birthday and, you know, we're going to get all this right wing propaganda. Oh, about yeah. 
Um, so yeah. we have to figure out how do we how do we combat that? How do we get you know, it's a little scary to think Netflix and other media companies might be and Disney might be better allies for us than the school systems right now. But that's <laughs> kind of a, yeah, kind of the world that we live in. And so and then the last chapter, which I know the least about and haven't really started yet, is going to be on video games and assassins mm. in the Oregon Trail. <gasps> Oregon Trail. Um, let me tell you about some of the. Uh, I've I was I recently got back into Pharaoh, which is a city builder that's all ancient Egypt themed. I or, love you so much. Or civilization. Um, yeah, there's so many video games. I actually my my partner plays a, a ton of like war simulator games, and he was just like quoting Napoleon quotes about war to me <laughs> yesterday. Through the, like, through the games. So yeah, yeah, this is the, this is the chapter I'm gonna have to work the hardest yeah. on because I was never mm -hmm. a gamer kid, and yeah. I'm gonna have to learn um, that. I'm gonna count on my 15 year old. The two of us are gonna sit down and play a lot of video well, games. Well, if, if you right. want to know about some um, some video games where you can where you can be on the battlefield and fighting these wars, I can I can hook you up. <laughs> All right, good. good. Um, I've heard Assassin's Creed is yeah, kind of like that. I haven't played it yet, but. Um, so, I mean, the idea is if all this stuff is going to be coming out, how do we make it good? And, mm -hmm. and how do we make it entertaining and good? And so I'm I'm going to start by, I am starting by looking at how have we done it in the past and what are the ways, what are the, the sort of the patterns of the, the past ways that we've taught mm -hmm. um, history through all these mediums and and then I'm going to try to interview some people who are doing it now, whether they're children's book authors or uh, video game designers, or how can we how can we do it better moving forward, either mm -hmm. 2026 or thereafter. So originally, I was hoping to do it for 2026. But since my book's probably not going to be out till 2025, that's going to be a little late. Um, well, you can you can come back and we'll do like the promo episode when it's when okay, it's cool. actually out. Cool. Exciting. Yeah. I just think that's so cool. I, I look forward to reading it. I really do. Um, also, I'm dead writing. serious. <laughs> that that whole, like, doing a book about Disney in the 50s. <laughs> you just latched on to Oh, my God. It would sell, like, hotcakes. Those yeah. Disney adults are for real. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be yeah, really cool. Anyway, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I got really excited. Um, you I, what, yeah, you me would, write it? Yeah, oh, do. no, yeah. I have absolutely no talent or patience. That's not true. <laughs> Wait, uh, I just said that I have a whole lot of patience, actually. Yeah, that's not, that's, neither of those are true. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm so intrigued in, of, like... I might write it. Let me write this down. I, I, I will remind, Did you take my phone? I might. I should have. Um, uh, stop making noise, <laughs> is what I want to tell you. <laughs> um, Sorry, Mom. <laughs> um... Yeah, I'm so intrigued with like talking to people who are doing it now and and trying to figure out better ways to do it because I you know that's what we were that's what we talked about with the Dear America books and also with like video games and stuff that like media is still being produced and it, it's still facing backlash and it's still like being trying people are still struggling struggling to figure out how to do history that it's both entertaining and accurate i mean there was even a backlash to hamilton recently um you know it's it's how do we make history relevant and exciting and interesting uh, while still recognizing that a lot of it is problematic um and we don't want to glorify it and we also don't want to like whitewash it like banning all 
conversations about race and slavery and bad things because yeah there's a lot of bad things that have happened in our past but if you don't talk about those bad things then they don't feel as weighty mm-hmm. right so that but you can also in that talk about area is so crucial it, yeah it's crucial to get uncomfortable but it's also like if you don't want to get uncomfortable let's talk about some of these you know great organizing figures of the civil rights movement or you know people who did all these really great things that are you know the hidden figures still that we just don't talk about so as long as we put them in into the larger context right exactly that's why i don't want to just do let's just do you know baird rustin's another one i don't know Mm -hmm. if you know baird rustin but he was the organizer of the march on washington Mm -hmm. and but they didn't even let him um speak at the march because he was gay and oh wow um Mm -hmm. They just didn't want to go there in 1963. Yeah, right. Um, So, you know, there's all these great stories to tie into sort of the larger patterns. And Mm. um, so that's, I mean, that's really what I want to do, not only with the book, but I'm hoping with the, with the TV stuff. And Mm -hmm. my dream someday is, is I want to have a center that like pairs creative people and, you know, like children's book writers and filmmakers and video game designers with historians oh my gosh and yes. you know so that like hey i want to do my this favorite person yeah um so i'm putting this in there in case there's somebody who listens to your podcast that wants to like fund this project you know they can call you and and we can we can talk but, i would love that but i mean that's so, what i, I really want i don't do. know what i want to do with the rest of my life mm-hmm. i don't that sounds right up my alley yeah so how but, do we do you know how do we pair these people so that yeah. you know, and then get them a little bit of starter money so that they can have mm-hmm. six months to to write a, a draft of a children's book or, you know, two episodes of a television show or a streaming whatever or a video. Mm-hmm. What is that feature on the Internet where you can do micro loans? Oh, like Kickstarters or yeah. not quite Kickstarter, oh. um, smaller than that. It's an individual person to person loan system. Um, oftentimes it was being pitched uh, to creators in Africa, mm. in different parts of Africa. Yeah, I've heard oh. of things. Was it like Kiva? Kiva. Yeah, I yes. used to do that. Yeah. So like a micro loan system where you can, you know, like have somebody who helps you pitch the project once you've gotten together the historian who has something to say and the creator who has a way to say it. But it's also like a social media, like match.com, like find yes, your, yes, find yes. your Wouldn't partners. That be great? Yeah. <laughs> it's some, it's some of that. And, and, you know, I think the micro loans in Africa are really small. I think you would need to do this bigger. Yeah. It would have to be bigger. Certainly. It, it's like, an, it's like a, a, a maker space incubator, you know, use all of the kind of the tech terms yeah. that are not a techie. Um, but like trying to, you know, I mean, I would love to just have a center that mm. that does that and has you know seminars on how to work how to do these kinds of collaborations or or conferences where people come together and and just talk about this stuff and um i've been talking to a lot of people about how to do this because ultimately we're doing the the black history episodes if we get the neh grant but then i want to do i'm trying to find a team and i wouldn't do all of these i would kind of oversee them but I want to find a team to do women's history and working class history and LGBTQ mm-hmm. history and whatever yeah. other history people want to do, you know, um, and and um, and then just mash it all together and call it American history, which is what we should be doing in the first place. But don't yes. make it, you know, don't make it 
February is is Black History Month and March is Women's History Month and just mm-hmm. it all kind of fits together, right? Let's, yeah. Um, so that's I don't know if that's ever going to materialize, but that that's the big dream down the road. Well, tell you what, if you put your center in Michigan, you've got your first employee. I'm very cheap. I don't know if my wife's going to want to move to the, the cold weather of Michigan, but you can try to work on her. I respect hey, we've that. We've got great beaches oh, and man. not a lot of bugs. These so. are all true things. Do, yeah. Are you aware of what's called the bug line? No. It runs basically along the Mason-Dixon, and uh, something like 30 times the number of bugs, like different species, lives below that, you know, Ohio River, uh, and above, it's significantly less. <laughs> I can see that, although there's a lot of bugs in Maine, but um, yeah, well, yeah, I've been yeah. trying, you know, our, I think I told you before we started, we have close friends um and the they're from michigan and they've been trying to get us to come up to the up so i've mm-hmm. never that is that is way high on my list of places to go so you should definitely go it is very haunted <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's cool right yeah. was that part of your last podcast like are there up episodes in your last podcast? we definitely did the yeah, UP there at is least a UP. once you also have to do mackinac island yeah, yeah. but that's um, right up by the up isn't it it is yes yeah. it is it's right on the way right. um and then do Lake Michigan for sure. But I we're want now you to... moving into our third podcast, which is just Michigan travel agents. <laughs> I want you to maintain a good one. and healthy respect and fear for Lake Superior while you're there. Yeah. Okay. That lake is not safe. Do not turn your back to it. No. And it will keep your body. It doesn't give bodies back. Yeah. It just okay. sinks them. Uh, all of the <laughs> men of the Edmund Fitzgerald are still down there perfectly preserved. Okay. So don't Google those photos. <laughs> That'll stay with you for years. <laughs> anyway, we're completely off track. I, yeah, I'm I, sorry. I do that. I, I think we, we've probably kept you long enough. So if is there uh, anything else you would like to uh, share with us, share with um, our audience? Pitch a project, no. talk about anything you've got going on. No, I mean, that's the, those are the things that uh, I've got other stuff, but, but mm-hmm. we, we did plenty and and um, I appreciate the time to, to talk about this stuff. And, and um, you know, it was really fun. I'm yeah. so glad you enjoyed it. It was it was such a pleasure talking to you. I'm so grateful for you to be agree to be on our show. And I it it I feel like our interests just completely aligned. And yeah. it's it's just so fun and exciting to have that happen. I always feel like that's the universe putting us in the right place with the right people. Wow. I know. I'm a, I'm a hippie. That's fine. <laughs> um, call me again if you have another topic you want to talk about. Cause Absolutely. I do. Listen, a thousand percent, don't test us on that. Because we'll, <laughs> I'll bring you back in a heartbeat. We will I'll be, be back. I'll be happy to do it. Okay. Wonderful. wonderful. So yeah, that was our conversation with Paul Ringel. Um, what that a delight! Made me really happy. I I feel like we could have talked for hours about our dream of like the center for for creatives and and historians to come together. And we are so deadly serious. If anyone wants to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I'd any billionaires that. out there actually want to do some good with their money, and can listen. I just say how jealous I am of all of his students? I oh yeah, right. Can you imagine? I would I would never skip one of those classes. Yeah, yeah. So if you go to that university, don't don't skip class. High Point University. Why do we do this to yourself? I don't know.
I lost my phone too, so I can't even look. It is somewhere in here, but this um, couch ate it. I didn't take it from you, but I also didn't want you to find it. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> um, guys, if you has heard any clicking, that was me making notes to myself. Yeah, uh, and Jen hates that. She super hates it. I did. So she she probably stole my cell phone. I didn't. Anyway, um, this was a great episode. I'm really happy with it. Um, yeah, we're uh, we're gonna take a little break, uh, but not that long of a break. Literally like three weeks. This is like we gotta get to go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, In fact, do you want to grab your next book on the way out? I will. Um, but uh, thank you for listening to this and and listening to our first season. Yeah, of we show. finished the first season with this. Yeah. isn't that exciting? It is exciting. We're uh, gonna make it after all. Just like freeze frame. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll be back. In, in a little while with... Um, right around the beginning of September. See you guys Labor Day. Around there with... Um, aqu- across the-, the wide and lonesome prairie. Uh, so get reading if you want to read along with Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Now's the time. Everybody take care. Goodbye! <laughs>Hey, thanks for listening. We'd like to thank Erica Page for creating our amazing intro and outro music, Callie Charing for being the best research librarian we know, and the world's best editor, Danny Heck. Feel free to reach out to them with contact info in the description.